Hello, everyone. My name is Joanne Lockwood, and I am your host for the Inclusion Bites podcast. In this series, I will be interviewing a number of amazing people and simply having a conversation around the subject of inclusion, belonging, and generally making the world a better place for everyone to thrive. If you'd like to join me in the future, then please do drop me a line to joe.lockwood at cchangehappen.co.uk. That's S-double-E, changehappen.co.uk. You can catch up with all of the previous shows on iTunes, Spotify, and the usual places. So plug in your headphones, grab a decaf, and let's get going. Today is episode 27, with the title, Who Am I? And Who Are You? I have the absolute honour and privilege to be joined by Roland Chesters. Roland describes himself as someone who champions authenticity. And when I asked Roland to describe his superpower, he said that it's slowing down the fast thinking. Hello, Roland. Welcome to the show. Hello, Joanne. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's great to be here. Uh, We've been planning this for a couple of months and uh, I've been really looking forward to this. Me too. Me too. Okay, Roland, so tell me, you know, who am I, who are you? What does that mean to you? Well, from from one obviously great fashionista to another, how many hats do you wear? Not all at the same time, obviously. But just think about the number of different hats that we wear and change hats for labels. What labels do we choose to apply to ourselves or what labels may other people apply to ourselves? And how interchangeable are those labels? When does one label become more dominant than another label? What I'm, I think I'm talking about is, is what is now in the, the trendy DNI world called intersectionality, where it is recognized that there are many different facets to an individual. Um, and some facets may be, be, become more pronounced, more recognized, stronger, depending on the con, that, the particular context that that person is at that time. And the reason I say that is in, in my own experience, my own history, um, I, as a gay man for many years, I wasn't out at work. I didn't share that side of my private life with anybody, which meant that on the Monday morning when you go into work and people gather around the coffee station and share stories of what they've been up to over the weekend, I was very careful to not say Richard and I went out and did this or he went off and did that. It was always we did this or my partner did that. And avoiding any um, social activities, so no drinks after work, just in case a mannerism or a wrong word slipped out and somebody uh, cottoned on to the fact that I'm, I'm a gay man. On reflection, many years later, if I had been out of work, it probably wouldn't have made an iota of difference. But that was my own kind of self-stigma, if you like. When I joined the Foreign Office in the year 2000, uh, joining the Foreign Office, everybody has to go through a very in-depth security screening, um, including things like uh, wanting to know my partner's mother's maiden name. So at that point, it was, yeah, well, I have to be honest about this uh, and share information that I am in a same-sex relationship and so on and so forth. So when I joined the Foreign Office, the first day walking into the Foreign Office with my head held high and my metaphorical rainbow scarf gracefully and artfully draped around my neck, 
It was with a huge sense of relief that at last I could be wholly who I wanted to be. I had no reservations about engaging in conversation about what Richard does, what we do together socially and all that kind of stuff, which was great and a huge relief. meant that I could be, I think, more productive, more engaged, because previously there was all that little bit of my brain that was on the alert, that little red flag flying saying, be careful, be careful, be careful, don't go down that route. Now I didn't need to have that. And yet, something like three years into my employment, I became unwell. Um, I was eventually diagnosed with HIV and AIDS. I was off work for five months, recovering. When I returned, social health records are kept separate to all other medical records. So my employers had not been told about the HIV and AIDS, only about my AIDS-defining illness, which was a brain disease. My first day back at work, I shared with my line manager the whole diagnosis. So not only the brain disease, but the HIV and AIDS. And she, with my agreement, went off to share that information with HR. And HR almost immediately came back, sent me that little email saying, you cannot share that information with anybody else because we, your employers, cannot be held responsible for how other people may react or respond to that information. And I had been reaching out for understanding and support, not for pity or sympathy, and and they gagged me. And they deprived me of the ability to be fully authentic. Being diagnosed with HIV and AIDS, having the brain disease, actually gave me a different person, a different character. At the time I was diagnosed, I was told I had two weeks to live, and that makes you reevaluate who you are what you want to do, what you want to achieve, what your legacy will be. And yet the Foreign Office wouldn't allow me to do that. Eventually, cut a long story short, I I forced their hand into enabling me to speak up, speak openly about being HIV positive. And that meant that I could again rediscover my full authenticity But in that period where a part of me was denied, it had huge impact on my mental health, my mental well-being. Shall I stop there? That's quite a lot to say. Yeah, no, that's uh, – I've heard your story before. I've heard you speak live on a number of occasions. And every time you talk and say those words, it's extremely impactful and and moving. And as you're talking, what's going through my my mind is that this need to be one person, to have one truth, to not to have two voices in your head. And I went through a similar, obviously not life-changing, but maybe in terms of uh, being gay and coming out around that. I, before I was out and open about my trans identity, I was always living two lives. I had two Facebook accounts. I had two profiles. I had two wardrobes. Um when I went away for weekends, I was on a stag weekend with the boys, which in reality was probably not a, a big lie, but it, was, it wasn't how I saw the weekend or the people I was with. Uh, but it was much easier to frame it in that way so that there was no mistake, there was no error, there was no kind of – it all seemed very natural to everybody else around me. So, yeah, yeah, and the, but didn't, the simplicity didn't, of being one person yes, is amazing. Didn't, didn't you find when you were – 
finally able to be the person that you wanted to be, the person that you were destined to be. It's like a huge weight that's lifted off your shoulders because finally at last you can step out into the world and say, actually, sod you, metaphorically, this is who I am. I don't have to change to to please you. If you like me, that's great. If you don't, just move on. Uh, completely. And I used to describe it as having a separate subroutine in my head. That every time I spoke, I had to pass it through this processor to validate it, check it, and then pass it back going, say it, don't say it. And then every, every almost like every, every waking moment involved these two voices in my head, these two identities, these two ways of thinking. And it's, and I found it very noisy. The head, that my brain was always having conversations with itself, always questioning, always thinking, and having a, a discussion. Should I say this? Should I? And I was actually having conversations in my head with my two identities. And what I found, I suppose, in the last probably three years, since I became one person, authentically one person, that my my brain is so quiet, so silent, so relaxing when I'm when I'm not doing anything. I can literally blue sky think and shut down and just wander off. And I, I have no noise in my head. And I've, I've talked to other people who are saying, oh, I think about this, don't you think about that? It's like, no, I just have this relaxing silence in my head. And I can then fill that silence with thought, with music, with whatever I want to do, but I'm not fighting it. And I, and that is really powerful to, to, to hear your story about the same sort of thoughts about this, this, this double thinking, this Absolutely. watching what you said. And, and yeah, all of that, all of before that peace and that calm, all of that processing that you were going through, that I was going through, is actually exhausting. It's mentally exhausting and mentally exhausting means it's physically exhausting. So in, if as an employee, certainly less productive, less engaged, less happy because there's all of this stuff going on at the same time that hopefully nobody else realizes because that's the whole point of us having that stuff going on to make sure nobody else realizes what's going on. And so for me, and that's why I say I champion authenticity because an authentic person in the workplace is a happy person. A happy person is an engaged, productive employee who will stay with your organization for as long as they need to, as long as you want them to, because they found a place where they can be fully themselves. It's so important. I mean, listen to your story about the uh, your your job where you were diagnosed with HIV and they wanted you to effectively keep that a secret or actually keep that a secret. Was that a sign of the times, uh, a misunderstanding, or was that just the culture? I mean, would you have seen that in other organizations, do you think, at the time? Well, this was, so I was diagnosed in 2006, so 14 years ago. So this was 13 years ago. And, and certainly the treatment of HIV and AIDS has moved on considerably, rapidly in the intervening period. We are now at a point where somebody who is on effective treatment and adheres to that treatment, who's HIV positive and on treatment, um, gets to a point where the viral load is so low in their bloodstream that it's no longer detectable by the machinery that detects this kind of thing. There is no cure, 
but the virus is so well managed, it's undetectable. Um, and if it's undetectable, it means that it's not strong enough for that person to be able to transmit the virus to somebody else. So they are no longer infectious. And the current slogan is U equals U, undetectable equals untransmittable. But not many people know that. Not many people understand that. Not many people are aware of that. And this is only in the last three years or so that this has happened. So 13 years ago, it was potentially a different story. But even then, there, the mythology that if you use the same cup, even though it's been washed, if you use the same keyboard, if you use a toilet seat that's something, and all of that kind of stuff, just touching, touching absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think... The response of my then employers was based on that outdated mythology. Eventually, when I kind of forced the situation and and was able to speak openly, World AIDS Day is 1st of December every year. So I organized on, on the first World AIDS Day when I was out as being HIV positive to have some speakers come in from the Terence Higgins Trust, which is the, the biggest charity in the UK that supports HIV positive people, to come and talk about HIV and AIDS, the global pandemic, because, you know, there have been other pandemics. Um, and I put posters. <laughs> other pandemics are available. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> Two for the price of one. Um, and I put posters up around the office advertising this event with my name on it, my phone number saying I was organizing it as a colleague living with HIV and AIDS. And posters were defaced. They had graffiti put on them. Some of them were, were slashed with scissors or a knife. Some were pulled off the wall and torn into pieces and trodden on. And I I was bearing in mind that this is this was probably about two, three years after my diagnosis. It was the first time I'd experienced that kind of visceral gut reaction to me sharing information about my status. And yes, it absolutely petrified me. I thought that if somebody could take a knife to a, a piece of paper and have that kind of intense reaction, what happens if they came across me in a corridor late one night when there's nobody else around kind of thing? But on reflection, I kind of eventually understood that this is a response of fear and fear based on lack of up-to-date current information. Um, and that fear then leads to a reaction of hate, that gut reaction that says, you need to stay away from me because you're, you're scary. And that then set me on the, the, the mission, I suppose, of educating, informing, bringing people up to date with current knowledge and information about HIV and AIDS. So I remember the 80s and those adverts on television, the tombstones, and there's very much framing around this is a gay disease. Uh, where the reality is more heterosexual people are transmitted than gay people, from what I understand. Nowadays, uh, certainly initially, it was the gay community that was most affected. Uh, and initially, the disease was called GRID, great gay-related immune, immune disease. Uh, but nowadays, as you quite rightly say, John, the, the, uh, there is more than 50% of the HIV community that is not gay. 
the most at-risk groups are uh, postmenopausal women who are at a stage in their life where they um, widowed, separated, divorced, whatever, um, want to engage in sexual activity and think that because I'm postmenopausal, I don't need to use any protection because I'm not going to become pregnant, but then become infected with some other kind of disease, including HIV and AIDS. And, and also the black African community that have um, certain, certain members of that community because of their cultural background um, have difficulty in understanding that HIV and AIDS is passed through unprotected sex, one of the primary routes of, of infection is through unprotected sex. But no longer gay men. And I'm pleased to say that the latest statistics from Public Health England in terms of, of annual rates of infections have shown an enormous decrease over the last couple of years in the number of gay men being diagnosed with HIV in the United Kingdom. And this is primarily due to the introduction of PrEP, P-R-E-P, which is um uh, a, a form of treatment that uh, it's part of the HIV medication that I and other HIV-positive people take that somebody can take as a, as a form of prevention for them to become HIV-infected. Uh, and it has proved to be really successful. NHS England only agreed to allow this to be rolled out um, across England uh, in the last few months. Scotland and Wales have provided it free for quite some time. NHS England had had withheld it until, as I said, a few months ago. So PrEP is pre-exposure prophylactics. Um, somebody can take that medication, engage in a, a unprotected sex, um, and be pretty confident that they won't become infected. So prophylactic, that's the barrier. That's the prevention. That's the prevention, yeah. 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 And then there's also, isn't there PEP as well? Is it PEP, PEP is, is, is post-exposure prophylactic. So if somebody thinks that they may have been exposed to HIV, if they go to A&E or some GPs or maybe some pharmacists, within 72 hours of when they think they were exposed, they will be given PEP which is a month's worth of the treatment, uh, which, again, um, is something like 90% successful in preventing uh, that person from becoming effective, infected. So there are methods of, of controlling. Um, the, the downside of, of this is that whilst we have seen the number of HIV infections decrease enormously, the number of infections from um, of of other uh, sexual infection, STIs, sexually transmitted diseases, has increased astronomically. So we are seeing a vast increase in the number of particularly gay men with syphilis, gonorrhea, chlamydia, and so on and so forth. All treatable conditions, none of them nowadays life-threatening, but the message is that PrEP prevents HIV, doesn't prevent all sexually transmitted diseases so in the same way you're saying that women of a certain age are not using barrier protection because they don't think they can get pregnant gay men are now saying well i don't need to use barrier protection because i can't get aids because of pep and prep um so again it's yeah it's now allowing 
well, allowing the rise of these other infections, which were once subdued and suppressed. Well, did I also, I mean, I, I, t- I had an HIV test for about two and a half, three years ago. I, I, I get regular bloods as part of my um, transition. The, the, general, the general identity clinic wants to make, monitor my, my hormone levels and things. And the bloods came back with a, with a, a I think it was a low lymph, or no, high lymphocyte count, which is several causes. One, steroids. Two is cancer. And three could be HIV. Um, estrogen, for those who don't know, is, is actually a steroid. So the doctor was fairly sure that it was the estrogen I was taking um, as part of HRT that was the cause. Um, he also established that my other bloods would have been, would have had an indicator if I had some, a cancer of some sort. So he decided as a, as a, as a complete rule it out, uh, have an HIV test just to rule it out. And I was negative, but what he said was that many people have received HIV through blood transfusions. And uh, there was a, a point in time where blood wasn't screened properly. And that, that caused, if not more, than, than maybe person-to-person transmission would ever have done because of this uh, bad blood coming from the US or some of it, wasn't it? The bad, bad. Well, actually, that, that when I was diagnosed, so it was um, 14 years ago, uh, because I was so unwell, uh, the medical team tried to trace back how long I, uh, before my diagnosis, I'd been infected. And they traced it back and they said it thought about 13 years uh Previous to diagnosis is when I was infected, and and me working back in my own mind uh, before my relationship with Richard and at the point of diagnosis, Richard and I had been together ten years in a monogamous relationship. Only had one partner before that, um, and that partner we'd been t- we were together five years. Uh, a couple of years before he and I met, he'd been involved in a really bad car accident, had had to have multiple surgeries, lots of blood transfusions. Whilst he and I were together, he became unwell. Um, and it, like I did, he went and saw lots of different doctors and specialists, and they came back and said that they thought that what he was experiencing was as a result of all of the anesthetics he'd been given during the operations post-accident. I now know and realize that the symptoms that he was showing then were was symptoms of being infected with HIV. Um, and so that's how I became infected. So he was infected through blood transfusions, and that's how I became infected. Of course, nowadays, uh, all bloods are screened, so there is absolutely no risk of being infected through a blood transfusion. Um, the other way of, of uh, used to be of transmitting infection is through mother-to-child infection. But nowadays, the, that rate of infection, certainly here in the UK, is very, very low because um, all women that go to antenatal clinic are offered a blood test. And if the, the test uh, brings back a HIV positive result, the mother is then put on medication, which lowers the viral uh, level in their bloodstream to the point that where the child is born, the child will not be infected. So uh, the primary route here in the UK of infection is still through uh, unprotected sex. The other route used to be through uh, needle sharing, 
But um, uh, Norman Fowler, who was the health minister at the time of that campaign that you mentioned, the icebergs and the tombstones, very wisely put in place the the system of, of needle banks, needle exchange places. So now the rate of infection through intravenous needle sharing in the UK is very low as well. Yeah, we think of... I mean, I think of the year 2000 as being almost yesterday. And I was surprised when I watched a film the other week and, uh, I think it was set in 2003 and the mobile phones they were using. Like bricks. They're just so alien. <laughs> They're bricks. Yeah, I thought, yeah. I, thought, I think it scratched my head going, 2003, that was just kind of like the other day. Yeah. How much the world has moved on in technology, but also in attitudes around, um, not just being gay, trans, HIV positive, et cetera. The world has moved on a lot, rapidly accelerating this kind of inclusion message, hasn't it? And so you must notice a big difference just the way you're accepted as a gay man, let alone as a, as a, a positive gay man. Uh, certainly as a, a gay man and a very kind of funny incidents that Richard and I decided to join a local gym about Five years, you can tell obviously from my own physique that this is having a great impact. It's about five years ago, uh, and off we went. And um, on the you know the menu of different memberships, they had family membership, so a couple could. And I was all geared up in my head to say, actually, we are a family because you know we are civil partner, we are a couple, we should have the family membership. And without a blink, the receptionist said, oh, are you a couple? I'll put you down as family membership. I thought, damn it, I was all geared up for a fight there. <laughs> she stole my thunder. So in, in many respects, in, in many areas, yes, in the UK, obviously in other parts of the world, not necessarily so enlightened. One incident when I was working at the Foreign Office after I was fully out about HIV and AIDS, I was working as Diversity and Inclusion Officer and I had to go and deliver training overseas about diversity and inclusion, which is slightly um, ironic because I was asked to go and deliver training in Dubai. Dubai is one of those countries that will not accept anybody living with HIV to enter uh, the country, even if in transit. Um, and in order for me to be able to go and deliver the training, the foreign office had to give the guarantee that I would leave the country after delivering the five days of, of training. And in order to guarantee that, they would escort me onto the plane uh, to, to leave the country. And I agreed to all this because I wanted to go and do it and, and it thought it'd be an interesting experience and so on and so forth. And then sort of the thought processes start kicking in as that either I can see this as being escorted out of the country as a convict in shackles because I've done something horrendous. Or I can see this as being like a state visit because state visits, the important person is escorted onto the plane to make sure they're sat comfortably and so on and so forth. And in my mind, I thought, this is it. It's a state visit. It's going to be fine. It's a state visit. Did the five days' worth of training. Um, and then the, the, the poor unfortunate lad who drawn the short straw to escort me back onto the, the plane uh, from the office. Um, he was very young. And he, all the way to the airport, in the car, through the airport, up to the 
door of the plane, he couldn't stop apologizing, saying how embarrassed he was, how ashamed he was having to do this. And he hoped I'd understood that it wasn't his fault. You know, he'd been told he had to do it. And in the end, I had to stop him. And I said to him, Patrick, Patrick, honey, sweetie, I'm on a state visit. Don't rain on my parade. Well, it went down like a bit like a lead balloon because apparently his name wasn't Patrick, but, you know, such is life. <laughs> but as I say, you know, attitudes have changed, but there is still work to be done. And I'm sure you've experienced this yourself, that attitudes have changed, but there's still work to be done. But there's still territories in this in the world where, it's not safe being you, isn't it? We, we, we know that. But, and one of the things I always say that I can't pack my transiness in a box and not be trans for that week. And some people who are gay, lesbian, bi can put their, their sexuality in a box, leave it at home, do what they've got to do, then come back and unpack themselves. And, but it, it's really, really strange. I mean, there's some countries that I couldn't even share a room with my wife. Even if we, even if we, we weren't um, a, a, a couple, it's, it's frowned upon two women or two men sharing the same yeah. hotel room. No, I, uh, we we went with a lesbian couple friends of ours for to Istanbul, and when we checked in, um, I went off with one of the girls to that that room, and Richard went off with the other girl to the other room, and then in the dead of night, we we swapped rooms. Came down to breakfast the following morning and nobody batted an eyelid. But there are times when you just have to be a little bit cautious and a little bit careful, I suppose. I mean, I, I, I was offered some work in Moscow and I had to really think long and hard. One, would I be safe? Well, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and ten, would I be safe, basically? Uh, especially as I was going there to talk about uh, DNI. Um, I wasn't there specifically to talk about trans awareness. I, I think if I was promoting LGBT messages, then I'd have been really dangerous. But I think just being there. But I, I've I've also been to Estonia and I've been to uh, Ukraine, Kiev, and I, I was I, I was more nervous about Kiev, um, just purely because I think that they still have a, a kind of an anti or. A, uh, not an LGBT positive kind of culture there. They're still unknown. I mean, the younger generation, yes, they're, they're evolving, but it still, it still holds some of that post-Soviet type um, anti-LGBT well, rhetoric. It's like all the, what's happening in Poland with the, those um, zones that they've declared that will not allow. Gay-free. Yeah, yeah. gay-free zones. zones. Whatever, yeah. And, and yeah. somehow in my mind, I've been to, to Poland. Um, I still see Poland as being part of Europe and quite close to us. And that's kind of scary that that is being allowed in inverted commas to happen. Some of my lifelong friends live in Gdansk and that area because I, when I was in my younger life, I, I traveled to Gdansk and say they're on and off. I've probably been there for a month over the course of five or six visits. Um, searching for, for amber on the shores of, uh, of the Baltic and in Gdynia, I think it was. Uh, so yeah, I've, 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 I see Gdansk as kind of a friendly, warm European city. And, and now I'm thinking, can I ever visit Poland again or for, for a while? 
and Hungary. You know, I've, I've, I had a, a great week in Budapest. Uh, Budapest is lovely, absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I'm now thinking I, I may have my, my Joanne passport, but I'm looking at, at the countries that that passport is is safe to visit as, as being uh, restricted. We went to Melbourne uh, last year for a conference. And I was picking uh, the least worst place to stop off on the way. Wow. Do I fly Emirates via Dubai? Do I go uh, via uh, China, via Shanghai? Do I go via Hong Kong? Uh, where, where should I stop off, which is least, least worst? And we ended up um, transiting in Hong Kong because I just perceived that as the safest of, of the three or four options and, and the cheapest as it happened. But, yeah, it, it's it's a real – yeah, we're having to do this double thinking again, aren't we? Where not only who am I, but where am I? Where am I safe? What is the least worst option? Here? And you know, you mentioning Hong Kong just made me think. I, I before working in the Foreign Office, I was director of exams for the Charles Institute for Linguists, and I used to have to go out to Hong Kong to supervise exams out there a couple of times a year, and would take a colleague with me. And one time, one of the colleagues I took with me was a, a, a lovely Nigerian woman, Tolu. She'd never been to the Far East before, and. Uh, you having been to Hong Kong, and this is now probably about 15 years ago, so things may have changed. But at that time in Hong Kong, you saw very, very few black people. And so I walking out in the streets with Tolu was an object of curiosity. First of all, a black woman, and then a black woman with a white man. Um, and it was fine when she and I were together. I then had to go off and do some stuff in China and Tolu decided that she'd stay on in Hong Kong by herself just to do some touristy things for a few days. When I got back to Hong Kong, I found actually that she'd left Hong Kong after just being one day by herself because it just got too much people coming up and wanting to touch her skin to, you know, see if it rubs off kind of thing. Um, uh, and I can, that was a real eye opener. For me, you know, we talk about white privilege and all this kind of stuff. And yes, absolutely. I recognize as a, as a white man of kind of middle class, whatever that means these days, I am absolutely privileged, but I recognize that and I understand it. But at the same time, if I wear one of these different labels, and that takes our conversation full circle, if I wear one of those different labels of being gay or HIV positive, then some of that privilege is is taken away from me. If I choose to share that kind of information, Tolu obviously couldn't hide her skin color, and she felt very threatened. Not that people were intending to make her feel scared, but that was her response to how they were behaving towards her. And that can happen sometimes in organisations in the UK, can't it, where you people are being well-meaning, but their over-curiosity becomes exhausting and you're always having to explain your story or or come out again yeah. as whatever that may be. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I imagine you have told the story you told at the beginning of this podcast a thousand times in various forms to, to many people. Indeed, absolutely. And and one of the things with hidden disabilities, because I, I talk a lot about hidden disabilities as well, is the fact that because the disability is hidden, if you choose to share information about it, then you need to be prepared to explain to people what the disability is, the impact that it has on you, and so on and so forth. 
when I was in the foreign office, having recovered from the brain disease, I was then diagnosed with dyspraxia as a result of the brain disease. And as a reasonable adjustment, the foreign office had provided me with the voice recognition, voice recognition software on the computer. And when initially the voice recognition software was loaded onto the computer, there was just me and my line manager showing an office. So obviously she was fully in the know about it. We were then moved into a bigger office of 150 odd people, all hot desking. Everybody hot desked apart from me because my computer had the voice recognition software loaded on it. And people were saying, why do we have to move desks and Roland doesn't? Okay. And then, of course, when I start using the voice recognition software, everybody around me says, why are you talking to your computer, Roland? And at times, if I need to put, share, you know, write down stuff that's sensitive, personal, how am I supposed to talk it into when everybody around me can hear? And then when I start to say to people, actually, I've got this because dyspraxia, da, 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 da. Then people come along and say, oh, can I have a go? That, why can't I have that? That looks like fun. You know, you can't have a go because it's trained to recognize my voice and you don't need it because you don't have dyspraxia. And yeah, just kind of gets exhausting after a while. But again, it goes back to labels. And that uh, intersectionality bit and that authenticity bit and how far do we have to go in order to be accepted, understood, recognized for who we are? I was going to say 100%, but are we ever fully authentic, particularly in the workplace? Do we ever actually bring in 100% of us? When I, you know, in the privacy of our own home with Richard, I'm a very different person and I am in a professional setting. And I recognize and understand that. So I changed the hat. I put on the appropriate hat to meet the suit, the setting and the context. So maybe authenticity is about recognizing our different hats and knowing when it's appropriate to wear which hat. Yeah, that, that's interesting because. Sometimes in certain situations, I find I'm wearing a hat without realizing it. Um, so if I'm in an all-female group, I, I, I act and behave in one way. And if I'm in a majority male group, I, I behave in a different way. Some of that's down to my, my historical socialization, my familiarity with, with that role. And I actually start realizing that I'm feeling really uncomfortable in that setting and I've, I've, I'm trying to get the hat off, and I, I can't escape that, that in, old programming. In which setting, Joanne? In the all-female or in the… In, in, the, in, the, in the all-male setting, yeah. or the, the majority male setting. I find myself sliding back into that 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 way of speaking, that culture, the sort of the attitudes, and I've, I, I realise that it's making me feel really, really uncomfortable. Uh, and I, I wouldn't go as far as say dirty, but I, I definitely feel it's uncomfortable. And I, I often wonder whether… That's how other women feel when they're in an all-male company about this kind of the culture that goes on and how uncomfortable they feel as well. And maybe it's not just me. It's about it's, it's about groupthink. It's about peer group pressure. And that leads me – thank you for that lead into the, the fast thinking versus slow thinking bit that, that you spoke about in the introduction. So uh, Daniel Kahneman uh, introduced this concept of fast thinking versus slow thinking, which says that all of us – have two ways of processing 
everything that's going into our, our brains. The fast thinking stuff, the stuff that we don't need to reflect on, that doesn't require us to deliberate and take action on. The habit stuff, the things that we do instinctively. And the slow thinking, the stuff that requires us to sit, sit back, pause, think about it, then make a decision. And the habits are stuff that we do because we need to have stuff that we can do rapidly. It's a protective mechanism. That's big and scary. I'm going to run away from it. Do it fast without pausing to think about it. These days, obviously, hopefully, we very rarely are put into situations where our, our lives are in danger. But as as a scenario that you described, we can feel uncomfortable anxious, overexposed, and so on and so forth. And so we resort to those biases. And one of the biases is it's that group thing because it's protective. I'm going to become like one of them so I don't appear to be standing out like a sore thumb and become uh, an object of whatever. Uh, So I will assimilate into the group so that I don't stand out. And we're all like that. We all have fast thinking and and slow thinking. And sometimes we need to be able to take that step back and think slowly what this actually means. Why am I behaving this way? Is it because of some kind of bias, some kind of pressure? What if I took this into slow thinking? Would that make a mean that I would make a different decision? And if the decision is different, then what is the impact of that decision on me and on the people around me? That comes very, very typically when we talk about unconscious bias. We, we talk about this kind of concept all the time, don't we, where most of our biases are well, – the our biases tend to be unconscious, which means we don't know we're doing it. But, but by being able to pause – our brains for a second and go, why do I think that? Why am I thinking that? What, what, what influences am I being receiving to make me think that? What media bias, what, what, pres- what presumptions am I making from this label I perceive as made me think that way? And that, that's part of the, the way we're trying to train our brains to press this pause button, isn't it? And, and to step back and go back into the, into the slow thinking, which is, it's quite expensive for brain though, isn't it? The, our brain burns a lot of calories, not a lot of energy. So the brain works best at fast. And it's really, we've got to use a lot of thought process to get us into this slow, methodical state of mind. Because when we're stressed, when we're rushing, we go into this autonomous sort of mode. It's like when we drive a car. You know? How many times have you driven home and not remembered any of the roundabouts? Not remember yeah, getting there. Absolutely. I, I, when I used to do regular commuting I, on the train up into London, there's three main roads between home and the station. And on mornings, I'd arrive at the station and I'd think, I, I don't actually remember crossing any of the roads. I could have left behind a trail of destruction, crashed cars everywhere, but I, I just automatic pilot. And that's it, quite dangerous, really. <laughs> But at the time, you're, you're probably conscious at the time that you're doing it. If, if something had triggered an exception in your mind, you'd have remembered it. But the fact that it was just routine, your brain decided it wasn't worth remembering because it's got a memory of that, that junction. Yeah. It doesn't need another one, yeah. does it? Absolutely. Our and brains are wonderful. We judging people. Our brains yeah. are wonderful things. Um, uh, we just need to learn how to use them perhaps slightly better sometimes. But yeah, we, we both know that this is millions of years of evolution. Yeah, not going to change optimizing it overnight. Out. No, 
And, you know, if you've met one Roland, I'm going to treat everybody that I think is Roland like the Roland I know. And that's like the roundabout. You don't create a new memory. You just recall that information and build your own picture. Yeah, as I keep saying, you you make shit up and fill in the gaps, don't you? (laughs) Absolutely, yeah. So a great Joanne quote, you make shit up and you fill in the gaps. I'll have to write that one down. But that's what we do, don't we? we, we our brain makes stories up. If it, 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 it looks at patterns, looks at previous events, and and decides a good fit, and you get into that good fit, and that's the biases and the perception that we really struggle to overcome, isn't it? And when we talk about HIV, we're talking about being gay, we're talking about whatever it may be, um, your fantastic moustache, all those kind of things, which the viewers will see on the podcast cover, but they won't be able to tell listen to you but you've got an awesome moustache you're into the steampunk look and you've got some really some amazing outfits that i love and, and people draw perceptions from you by looking at you don't they and, and they, they obviously look at me uh, as a trans person and they're trying to work me out and my 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 intelligence gets questioned one because i'm trans or b because i'm a woman it's kind of you can tell people weighing you up it's, it's really weird but it's interesting though because obviously both you and and i have made deliberate decisions to present in the way that we present. So me with a moustache and a bow ties and the outfits and all that kind of stuff, that's that's my – it's almost my costume that I put on when I'm giving a professional, in inverted commas, performance because that's what gives me confidence. That's what I feel comfortable in. Uh, and we all need to have that kind of – confidence and comfort factor when we are standing up delivering what can sometimes be messages that people don't necessarily want to hear or that make them feel uncomfortable and we have to sort of drive that through and enable them to remember it and part of enabling them to remember it is to remember actually it's Roland with the bow ties and the waistcoats and the, the, the twirly moustache that delivered that message in the same way that I'm sure that, that you think about how you present yourself the Joanne brand as it were yeah I, I think going back to the hats we wear we have a, a parent hat we have a uh, a child uh, we, we're a child obviously we have our child hat when we're talking to our parents or our siblings in the office hat, we have our shopping hat, how we behave as a customer, how we behave as a supplier. As you said, you have you have your angry hat ready ready tucked away for when someone uh, you have to explain that you are you are a couple. Um, so I think we all have those kind of things in our pocket we we want to bring out, or we know we've got them there. So yeah. And I don't think we hide them. We just bring the hats out as needed, don't we? It's, it's, it's kind of transactional analysis, you know, transactional analysis where you're either an adult, a parent, or a child. And uh, both people on each side of the conversation fit one of those roles. And the best ro- role to have is adult to adult, where you have an adult to adult conversation. But at times, we all slip into being the, either the parent or the child as well. And then the conversation come, gets slightly skewered by that. Uh, yeah, I, I I sometimes do that consciously, where I'm aware of the fact that right now I don't want to be an adult. I'm quite happy being led, being told, being managed. If that makes you happy, I'm not bothered. Actually, I don't I don't need to adult at this point in my life. So, and I'm quite happy with this. Whereas other times I'm I'm adulting up and making sure that I'm, I'm having my voice and saying what I need to or conversing in a very mature way. I, I don't think we're doing that now. But, yeah, it, it does 
you, you sometimes have the choice and you can you can step in or step out can't you? but uh, that uh, reflecting on current times and you know the pandemic that we are now experiencing and the way and i don't want to make this political at all but just a reflection of of that that the government stepped into the role of being parent when and and spoke to us as children when it might have been more effective. I said, I don't want to make this political at all, but it might be more effective if they d- established a sort of an adult to adult relationship with us. Yeah. Um, who knows? Who knows? <laughs> but yeah, I, I have my own, I have my own views about the the quality of the briefings that they were doing on a daily basis. They were confusing, misleading, beating around the bush it's very hard to glean some evidence out of that. And what you really wanted was kind of, this is, this is, this is the facts. This is what's going on. This is what will happen. And this is what we're doing about it. But they tended to have 20 slides of build up and you're going, what are you telling me? What are you telling me? What are you telling me? Oh, okay. People are still dying. We need to isolate, stop people dying. And this is where, this is how we're basing our decision. Okay. I get it. Whilst that graph is here, we're doing this. When the graph gets to there, we can do that. And if it goes down to here, we're cool. We can stop doing that. Okay. Right. I I get it. I can now understand the formula myself. That would have been an adult to adult conversation, which, which sadly we didn't get. But isn't that reflective of the media where they're always dumbing down? headlines and articles to the reading age of a a nine or 10 year old is is kind of that mentality where government thinking ought to make everyone understand this. We've got to dumb it down to the the Janet and John, the Fisher price. Well, I, 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 my, my personal feeling is that social media is hugely divisive. Um, and, And again, that kind of brings us back onto the topic of inclusivity that certainly through the pandemic, of course, we've seen people on Facebook and other Social. I, do, I I do quite a bit of Facebook, but I don't engage much with other social media channels. But people are getting very very heated, to put it mildly, uh, and taking polar opposite views on how people should respond and engage and react to the pandemic and so on and so forth, and. Just letting rip into people. The, the anonymous keyboard warriors have got a lot to answer for, I feel. I mean, certainly the, the three big incidents I think of, you, you've, got, you've got the Remain Brexit, you've got the the election across the pond, the, the red-blue divide there, and you've, we've now got the Vax, anti-Vax. Um, and, and we can all name hundreds of other ones. Even Black Lives Matter has had its polarizing effect on people as well. And we don't we don't allow ourselves as a, as a society to have open conversations, rhetoric where we can debate and talk about things. It's I'm right, you're wrong, and, and that, I, I'm intelligent, you're stupid on both sides. Yeah, isn't it? and I I think social media has a large portion of blame to to be responsible for in in that in the. Certainly on Facebook, you know that knee jerk reaction, just a a short phrase of of dismissal some of them sometimes very rude very arrogant and so on and so forth and people feel able to do that because of the anonymity that that provides i think if you think back um you know when when the computer was was first invented 
if they had thought that this is how we would end up, I wonder if they would have had a rethink and thought, actually, might not be such a good idea. Yeah, it's interesting that uh, here we are on the 8th of December, just to put a timestamp on it, and today we had the first person to receive the, the COVID-19 vaccine, so Margaret Keenan, who is 90 and 91 next week. I think it's a, it's a great milestone, and we, I'd like to think with it beginning of the end, uh, obviously this, the, 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 the legacy of COVID is going to be going on for a while, but at least we're at the beginning of the end of uncertainty, and it's a time for the country maybe to sort of the people who are scared, people who are not sure about the vaccine, to, to listen to the facts, listen to what's going on, see the evidence, and then the people who are vehemently anti-vax call, call into question the truth that they know and whether that is true um, and not get into arguments about it. I think that, that's that's what I'd hope for the next six months is we we actually have proper evidence and, and maybe the government or the, the NHS or whoever it is looks at trying to allay the fears collaboratively rather than telling if that makes sense so produce evidence show because I, I i heard someone the other day saying what about thalidomide i said what do you mean what about thalidomide i said that was a drug that was a that was a to cure morning sickness that's not a vaccine and you know I, I look back you know i joined i was in the raf when i left school and the first thing you do when you, you join the forces is you become a pincushion yellow fever diphtheria hep, hep a hep b uh smallpox, polio, or everything. You get top up, BCG. And, you know, we as a, we as a, we would go on holiday to Hong Kong and you used to have, or Africa, you have cholera, diphtheria. You think nothing about. And, and those vaccines actually did knock you out a bit, didn't they? And they were, you know, you had yellow fever. You knew you had it for a couple of days. Um, and so we would, we we're going on holiday and say, what, what jabs do I need? Just going to doing it. And now this mentality seems to be, well, I'm anti-vax. But, well, if you if it's smallpox, would you be anti-vax? Well, maybe not. No, no, smallpox is bad. It, it, it's, it, so it's it's maybe reframing some of these conversations around, well, look, you, you take that. Uh, smoking's bad. We know smoking kills you, but you still smoke. So you won't have a vaccination, but you'll smoke. Okay, drinking beer, eating red meat, all these things are carcinogenic. We know we're too much chocolate. So we're happy to we're happy to kill ourselves in different ways. But as soon as we we're, we're given a vaccine, we're saying, "Well, hang on a minute. I, I need some evidence. I need to prove." So we've got evidence that smoking kills, but we still do it. So evidence doesn't matter. The facts don't change people. So what it is is the emotional, the attachment, or the echo chamber you're in. So if you're in an anti-vax echo chamber, then stepping out of that means you've lost your network, you've lost your 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 your, your friends, your your tribe. So it's not just about what you believe. It's about what goes with that belief that people want to hang on to. That, that's where it becomes dangerous, I think. And, and that's where the labels and the hats come in and the safety we feel in our tribes, isn't it? I, one thing that struck me about about um, the pandemic, in the first lockdown, I'm, I'm, I was on the sheltering list. So um, Rich and I just used to go out for a walk of an evening, late of an evening when there were hardly any people on the streets and and uh, we could avoid people easily but if you did meet somebody coming down the street towards you either they cross over the road or we'd cross over the road and we'd smile and say hi how are you kind of thing. didn't know them but there was that air of civility and caring for other people and i really really hoped that we would hold on to that 
sadly, human memories are very short and we appear to have already lost the positive, the good stuff that may have come out of the pandemic, which is a real shame because it was a golden opportunity that, that we've lost. That solidarity cheering the NHS Absolutely. at 8 o'clock on Thursday. Yeah. And you're so right. Marie and I used to walk down the road in the evenings and someone else would come the other way. One of us would dive into the bush yeah. or into a driveway yeah. or, or step right back yeah. and make way. Yeah. We'd work out actually – You've got right away because you, you've got less pavement on your yeah. way. We could, we've got more. Yeah, so you, absolutely. Yeah, and that's very much. Uh, and cheers, good evening. Mm. How are you doing? Yeah. Smiling at each other. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I've lost that already. I say that that was a that was a flash in the pan for three months in the summer. Mm. Yeah, yeah. <sighs> what shall we do? Now eh? we're arguing about masks, and uh, we're looking at people. We're ostracizing people without masks, yeah. and um, whether they are valid non-maskers or you think well actually you don't look that bad yeah just just <laughs> so it's and again uh, it's making that instantaneous judgment judging people by what we see making assumptions about a person that because you look like you don't have any kind of disability that means you should be wearing a mask uh, kind of thing I, mean, I i i wear a mask i don't even think about it but I know that I feel uncomfortable sometimes. Yeah, it builds my temperature up and I can feel kind of a bit claustrophobic. And I've got one of these kind of like plastic things you put under yeah, the mask yeah. gives you a bit more breathing space, which, works, which seems to work quite well. Mm. Um, but, yeah, but, as a fellow glass yes, wearer, absolutely. It, doesn't you, it doesn't stop you misting up at all no, and you end up having to wave your glasses around yeah. or, 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 yeah. or go blind for a few seconds yeah. all the time. Yeah, I'm with you on that one. But I don't think I don't. You know, I think if someone's going to fix the, the misting problem, they would have done it by now. It, it's it's kind of one of those things, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. All these little devices you put on your cheekbones, or you you uh, you smear stuff on your lenses, or something. It's all kind of not not that effective. Or if really. you, you have one of those sort different. of visor shields oh, that you oh, wear yeah. instead. But I went and got my haircut yesterday, and my hairdresser had a mask and a visor, so you know, I was visor. very grateful to her for that. So. Thank you very much. But that, 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 I mean, I went. I was in London on Friday having my hair adjusted, which it, it, I get every four to six weeks. And my usual thing is, I, I go to the station, I grab a, a like a, a pasta pot from from Marks and Spencer's at Waterloo and a coffee. I sat on the train thinking, I'm going to have to kind yeah, of take your mask off. <laughs> yeah, spoon, spoon it in under the mask. Yeah. I thought, well, I feel a bit kind of guilty, so I was. I, I positioned myself so I was angled down. I was nobody was in front of me, so I've was, been I was very considerate about making sure that I wasn't transmitting any droplets. In it. But I was very conscious of having to. Well, to thank you, for, thank you for being so conscientious. Yeah, not everybody is, but no. And I just sort of sat there thinking, <laughs> "Why do I deal with this now?" <laughs> I thought, "Well." But so no, I was I was very deliberate in making sure that I I was minimising my own threat footprint, if you like. Um, in that situation, but yeah, at that point, I was reflecting on one of these whether one of these plastic masks. A, is it comfortable and better? And B, is it safe? Because if it's safe, why isn't everyone wearing those instead? Because clearly, people with uh, an underlying health condition that prevents them wearing maybe a, a, a clip on onto their face mask, the plastic shield has very little impact on your breathing ability. Yeah. yeah. So why aren't why aren't we promoting those? It, I'm guessing the reason is A, they could be expensive, or B, they're not as effective. So the government don't want to promote them as alternatives. 
or and I'm not one for conspiracy theories at all. <laughs> it are. could be <laughs> that some minister somewhere has got shares in the companies that make those masks instead of the shields, and that's yeah. why. No, ignore that. <laughs> Did he? Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> for the tape, you said. Yeah, for the record, yeah. But I'm tempted to get one of those plastic masks just purely from a just to be able to eat, eat a sandwich on the train. But then I thought, well, I'm only going to London every six weeks. I can, I can, I can, I can actually put up with the train journey for once every six weeks and not eat. I can, I can plan my journey better. So, yeah, well. Well, we, we've been we've been yakking on now for just over an we hour, have, so we've we done have. really well. We it's, have. It's been brilliant. Very inspiring. And uh, so you, you've been doing a lot of stuff over the last few years, and you've even written a book, haven't you? Is that, I that right? have, oh. absolutely. Two years ago, um, my book, Ripples from the Edge of Life, was published um, and has, has been quite successful, I'm, I'm pleased to say. And it's not just your voice, from what I understand. It's no. a lot of other people's stories in there. So uh, I decided to write the book. Um, I, there was an article that appeared in the Garden newspaper uh, by um, some journalists who were saying that um, very little contemporary stuff is written about HIV and AIDS. Um, and I thought, okay, well, that's that's a sign that something needs to be done. But I recognized I do lots of voluntary work in the HIV and AIDS sector and obviously engage with a lot of people living with HIV and AIDS. And I recognize that my story is, is by no means unique or special. So I wrote my own story and then put a message out asking if, there's, if there were any other people who'd be willing to share their stories and 14 other people came forward and said yeah absolutely uh, including some women living with HIV um, quite a number of the people uh, out of those 14 have also had AIDS as well so it's me plus 14 others but what I thought was interesting is that out of those 14 about half of those people didn't want to to use their real names in the stories and I'm not there to out people at all but I just thought that that was still a reflection of the fact that uh, people experience huge amounts of stigma around HIV. These people didn't want their real names to be used because they were concerned of the repercussions that that may have on them. Um, so, yes, ripples from the edge of life. Um, I've uh, probably given away as many copies as I've sold. But as I say, it's, it's had some really nice reviews. People have been very positive about it. And it's just my way of helping to um, break some of the out-of-date mythology that still surrounds the condition. I think we first met probably two years ago or thereabouts. I remember it being quite cold and approaching Christmas. So it must have been around about this sort of time a couple of years ago. At uh, There was a launch of, a, I think, a charity called Positive Allies yes. um, run by Drew, Drew Dalton Indeed. in London. Yeah. And you were the speaker that night, yeah. which was, I think, the first time I heard you speak and met you. Yeah. Even we chat on the phone. Mm. So you're quite involved with Positive Allies. So I am. What, what is that? So I, I am an ambassador for Positive Allies. Positive Allies is a charter mark created by the University of Sunderland, where Drew Dalton is a, a lecturer. Um, it's the only charter mark of its kind in the whole world. Um, and it's a charter mark for organizations who wish to demonstrate their understanding and knowledge of HIV and AIDS and how they are prepared to uh, support um, and work with their employees, 
customers, clients, university students, and so on, who uh, who may be HIV positive. It's something that I am really keen to promote more widely, having had my own experiences of sharing that information in the workplace and knowing the devastating impact that that can have, having worked voluntarily with others who've been through the same experience. So, uh, yes, the Positive Allies on the University of Sunderland website is something worth looking at for any organization that wants to demonstrate its um, positive, with a small p, attitude towards HIV and AIDS. So yes, I mean, I, it, I was a bit slow off the mark because it took me a while to realise that positive allies, positive was around HIV positive and being an ally to someone who was positive, and that. I, but it's a great play on words about being a positive ally as well. But uh, yeah, no, yeah. I've, I've spoken to Drew a number, and I think after the event that uh, you spoke at and we met, we we had a, a great conversation with Drew, and I've spoken to him a number of times over the years, and I follow him on Facebook and chat to him, and he's doing some amazing work to push this this kite mark out. And to create awareness, yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a really, really powerful way. It's, it, it's easy and accessible for all organisations to to get involved with. It's not a, it's not like some of these big, big bodies that charge you a fortune to be part no. of. This is accessible. It's, it's, it's accessible and it's, it's no one person business is anybody. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And uh, we are um, planning to refresh the the website and all of that kind of stuff. Um, and we've got some great new activities lined up as well to support the the chart mark. Um, Drew and I and the other uh, people that are engaged Positive Allies are meeting early in January to put a plan together of how to implement all of this. So do go and look at University, <coughs> University of Sunderland Positive Allies website. I'll put all of these details and the links in the, in the show notes on the website so people will be able to find that. And I, I, we can't leave because one of your proudest moments was to be nominated as a finalist for the National Diversity Awards a couple of years ago, wasn't it? It was Don't tell me what that last year, in actual fact. Um, last year. I was, I was totally gobsmacked. It, it sort of happened out of the blue. Um, I got an email saying that I'd been nominated by somebody. Um, and then sort of countdown towards the, 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 the deadline, and I got the message saying so there was something like 35,000 nominees last year. Uh, and I was one of the eight people who'd been shortlisted as a finalist for the disability role model, which is just astonishing and astounding. And when turned up to the, to the award ceremony, met the other finalists in, in my category, all truly inspirational people. Um, it was just a night to never be forgotten, something I'm extremely proud of. But I think due to all the support that I've had across the years from, from Richard, my partner, from friends, colleagues, um, anybody who has shown any kind of interest or support, we are, we are not lone ships in the night. We can't achieve this without other people around us. So although, you know, the recipient of the award is one person, there's always a, a, an army of people behind that person. And I'm very grateful for that. Yeah, there's many unsung heroes, but it, the award is celebrating all of the people doing all of the work. Yeah. And 
creating that, as you say, that, that, that focus for the evening about talking and celebrating what people are doing and inspiring other people to join in as well. Yeah. So I think no, it's, it's actually amazing the work you do and with positive allies yourself as a, as an open out HIV positive gay man and, and being visible, being a role model, because that will inspire, no doubt, many future generations. And and the stories in the book also amplify lots of stories, which is extremely. I'm extremely proud to have uh, been uh, to be your friend and also to uh, have you on here today. So it's been an absolute yeah, an pleasure. Thank you very much. Excellent. So, well, many thanks once more. Um, if anyone listening, I'm sure there's much to ponder and take inspiration from. Uh, listeners, I mean, you, you mentioned your website, ripplesfromtheedge.com. Connect me on LinkedIn. Uh, find um, find your contact is from there. And I'm sure you'd welcome to have people contact you. Absolutely, and, uh, yes. reach out yeah. Sure, that, totally. Yeah. Well, thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in. I appreciate your, your sticking out to the end. And if you want to catch up with other episodes of the Inclusion Bites podcast, that's B-I-T-S, then please do check us out on the website. Please do subscribe. Tell your friends, tell your colleagues, because I've got a number of other exciting guests lined up. I'm sure you'd be inspired by over the next few weeks and months. And of course, if you've got a story you'd like to be on the show, then please do let me know. And of course, I'd also welcome any feedback or suggestions you may have on how we can improve to joe.lockwood at changehappen.co.uk. And finally, my name is Joanne Lockwood, and it's been an absolute pleasure to host this podcast for you today. Catch you next time. Bye.